But it certainly enjoyed <coughs> to see the other re-singer. And he reminded me that we'd met years ago. And I told him a story. I'd been telling his brother I didn't think we'd ever met. But I never expected to see a re-singer with good looking. But my, and when I saw him, it's surprising. I wish you'd help me, brother. I'm dealing with this Presbyterian brother of yours, and he's about to get me down. I hope you'll kind of help me a little tonight. Now, tomorrow night, we are divided tonight. It couldn't be helped. We understand that. But I hope that these messages, teaching messages, have been at least worthwhile. We've enjoyed staying out in the sticks, and uh, it's been good. We are almost uh, getting to where we think of you, dear people, as another home and as our dear friends of the Lord. About first of this next month, be three years since we came to meet Brother Ernest Resinger, and then through him, through you. And it's been our joy to know you and to be your guest and to hope that some have been brought into the liberty of the gospel in these days just a few days apart. I thought maybe tonight we would dissect a mooted, a, a, a something that has led to a lot of controversy, and uh, I, I'm going to speak tonight from the last chapter of the Bible. <clears throat> Tomorrow night we want to deal with the most pessimistic and the most optimistic text in the New Testament, John 5:40. You will not come unto me that you might have life. To me that is a pessimistic, that's a terrible statement, because it's so. But John 6, 44, no man can come unto me except the Father drawing that has hope in it. That's a very optimistic verse. Now go at it that way because we've been told that, that uh, that's a terrible verse, but I want to show you tomorrow night how to deal with people if you if I can and trust that the last service shall be worthwhile. I announce that tonight I will teach you some from the seventeenth verse of the Revelation, second twenty second chapter of Revelation, and I would speak on the whosoever wills of the Bible. The whosoever wills of the Bible. Now, somebody came to me at the service last evening, and they didn't get my subject right. They thought I'd gone to preach on the fact that the Scriptures teach that whosoever will may come to the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, no, no, I'm not going to do that, for the Scriptures do not talk in that kind of language. No, I want to say three things from the scripture here tonight. Three things that describe the whosoever wills of the word of God. Did you get what I said a minute ago? I think it is terribly important that we not make the Bible say what it does not say. That's just as bad as making it say less than it says, isn't it? 
add to the Bible. For instance, last night after doing my best to confine ourselves to what the Scripture actually teaches about what they call predestination, it still wasn't clear. And somebody wanted to know if the Bible actually taught that God predestined some to be damned even though they wanted to be saved. It is amazing how Satan has clouded our thinking and how we need to be a little scrupulous almost uh, to the point of just being too scrupulous to see to it that we stick closely to what the Bible actually says, not what somebody says it says, but what the Bible actually says. For instance, have you heard it said that the Bible says that whosoever will may come to Christ? Have you ever heard that? You have, haven't you? But the Bible don't say that. Now, that is the truth. That's so, but the Bible don't say that. That's so, whosoever will may come to Christ. But the Bible don't use that kind of language. Do you get it? It just don't do it. I've had people say, Brother Bible, the Bible says, Whosoever will may come. I said, No, it don't. Well, you say, Brother Byron, you strain the gnat and swallow the camel. No. I'm insisting these days that with so much controversy and much difference of opinion, and we're all trying to find out the truth, that we just confine ourselves to Bible language. If the Bible says a thing, let's say it and be able to quote it. But let's not accord an expression of ourselves, a form of pattern of theology ourselves in dealing with our own hearts or somebody else and make the Bible say what it does not say. Now what does the Bible say? Verse 17, this is what the Bible says. And the Spirit and the bride say come and let him that heareth say come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely now, of course, this is the verse from which we get what we hear that down our way a lot, the wonderful whosoever will gospel. But this isn't what this passage teaches. That isn't what the Bible teaches. Tomorrow night we're going to try to show you the most pessimistic text in the Bible is, Ye will not come unto me. If it's left up to men, who will come? Nobody. In that verse, John 5:40 slams the door and damns every human being this side of heaven or hell. Because if that's all there is to it, nobody will come. 
Nobody. If I <clears throat> left home most of these 39 years and <clears throat> lived in a suitcase, slept on different beds and ate different kinds of food all these years, had nothing else to preach than a little emptiness of going up and down the line with some confidence in people that they were nice folks and if handled the right way, they'd respond in the right way, I'd be a fool. But what keeps you keeping on is that you do not go preaching a whosoever will gospel, but you go preaching the gospel of God concerning his Son, the hearing of which men and women, some of them, are given faith to believe. And our confidence is in God. We go each place we go remembering that the Spirit of God will have to tell even a man as sound in truth and as sound in the welfare. As the Apostle Paul, he said, Now don't be afraid, Paul, going over there. I have much people in that city. Isn't that a wonderful expression? I have much people over there. Your labor will not be in vain. There's some people over there that are going to hear the gospel and actually be able to hear it and close with it and savingly believe in the one of whom the gospel speaks. Now, that's our encouragement. That's our, now, that'll do when you're not getting results and it'll do when you are. And that I wouldn't take a million dollars for. Now, having labored the point that I'm not talking about the whosoever will gospel tonight, I want us to notice three things that this verse of Scripture says about the whosoever will. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life free. In the first place, the whosoever wills of the Word of God are men and women who thirst for sovereign divine grace from God. Whoso is a thirst, let him come. Whoso is a thirst. That's the first thing about a whosoever will. I'll tell you who will take of the water of life freely. The fellow that's thirsty for the work of God's divine grace in his heart and in his soul. The invitation is to thirsty people the instruction to thirsty people is to take. But the invitation to thirsty people is to come to the Lord Jesus, come to the fountain of sovereign grace. Now, this grace that I'm talking about now, this water that men are to take freely, we are not left up to our own conjecture as to what it is. The first two verses of this last chapter of the Bible tell us that this thirst for sovereign grace, for the water of life, that this water of life is defined in verses 1 and 2, that it flows from the throne of God. He showed me, verse 1, a pure river of water of life. Clear as crystal. Where does it come from? Proceeding out of the throne of God 
and of the Lamb. That's where God's grace comes from, from his wonderful throne, the throne of God and the one who has the cross. Here is a river full of water, and the water is full of life, and it flows from the throne of God. Yes, there stead for a drink, and then a drink, and a keep on drinking of this water that flows in a river out of the very throne of God, who sows the thirst, let him come. Here's the water of life. It's flowing. It's deep as the heart of God. It's wide as the arms of the cross. There's plenty of to spare. The scriptures will say, but God, who is our, our seed, rich in mercy, you probably wouldn't exhaust it if you drank of it every day. There's plenty to spare. It's for the healing of the nations. This world of life, that's what the grace of God is pictured as being here. Here it is. It's proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, there was a tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This water of life, then, that people are bidden to take if they're willing. And who's willing? People who are thirsty. They're willing. They're willing. They're willing. This river, thank God, not just a stream. I've tried to exhaust some of the meaning of Paul's expression, but God, who is rich in mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy, when I wealthy is, plenty and despair. He's this rich, there's just one verse of scripture that this little preacher knows about trying to define how rich God is. I tell you one thing about it says he's this rich. He's rich unto a double L all who call on him. If every human being in the world from Adam down the right now will call on God and thirst for this water that flows from the throne, he still has plenty of water to spare. It wouldn't exhaust. He's rich unto having all who call on him. God's throne from which sovereign grace flows. Now, we need to camp here just a little while. You thirsty? All right. You thirsty enough to be willing? You still want to argue? Or if the water was offered to you, you ready to take it? Huh? That's the whosoever will. They're thirsty. Whosoever's a thirst. Now, we must be planted beside this river of life. In this life. Here's where the rub comes. Our roots must be put down into that stream like trees in an arid land thirsty for water. And that must happen in the here and the now. 
I tried to show you last night that the reason, the doctrine, the teaching of predestination is so false and so hated and so caricature is not that men are ignorant of the heart of it, but they actually know. They won't admit that they understand what it means. They hate it. They try to get rid of it because it's the heart of the gospel, and it means that salvation is a thing of holiness, and that man's being saved in proportion as the character of Christ is being reproduced in him. Now, with the present temper in the churches and out, north and south, we can't possibly have a gospel that leads to men's holiness. That just won't square with what we want today. And so these truths are so hated. I have come to believe they're hated because men do understand them. They, they, they'd say all manner of foolish things about them, but they've been exposed to them. They understand that salvation is the making of a man holy. That's exactly what it is. You can't have this Sunday morning stuff we call Christian America and keep these doctrines, so we've got to throw them out. You can't have what we have down south, and you know better up there. Call Christianity. Give anything except lip service to a doctrine that talks about what salvation is. It's making men and women to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. And what I'm talking about tonight, this thirst, Thirst for sovereign grace. What does that mean? Thirst. Intense need. There isn't anything on earth. Doctors will tell us as intense as a man's desire for water when he's thirsty. It's the most intense of all the needs of the human body. You can do it without food and a thousand other things. But you've got to have water. You've got to have water. And I've never experienced it, and I doubt you have. Only one time I had tomine poison, and they wouldn't give me any water for a day or two. And I can venture about safe now, I would have sold my soul for a drink of water. I would have. If I'd have had a chance, I'd have bought a glass of water with my eternal soul. That's how intense it was. Now, you get intense about this business of wanting divine grace to flow from God into your soul, of wanting those things that can only come to you as a gift from the hand of him who does so utterly in grace. Forgiveness is sin. You either got to work it out or it must be given to you to become intense and desire in this life the forgiveness of sins and the planting of the germ of holiness within you. Who sows a thirst? Who sows a thirst? Let him come. Let him come. Now all men 
or now whosoever wills is this type of you see for all men not thirsty for God's grace to do for them and nobody would want God's grace to do anything for them until they were acutely sensitive of their ill desert and their ability to work out their own salvation all men are not whosoever wills. Now, the invitation, of course, who shows the first? It's just as wide as you want to make it. Are you thirsty? Well, it's big enough to take you in. You're not thirsty? It leaves you out, but by your choice. By your choice. Is that fair? Who sows the thirst? I will not widen it any more than that. I challenge you, there isn't an invitation in the Bible that's any wider than that. You're hungry. There's bread for hungry people. You're not hungry. No bread offered you, but you make the decision yourself. You say, I don't need forgiveness. I don't want to be holy. I don't desire the work of God's grace. And the Senate and dead sure do that. And the Senate and dead sure does do that. And you invite yourself out. You say, and excuse me, please, you're not talking to me. But if by God's grace you say, that's talking to me, I'm thirsty. I have a keen sense of my need. I love to be planted by the side of this river with the privilege of drinking it. Come unto me, says the Lord, if you're thirsty, and do what? Drink. Just keep on drinking. And just keep on drinking. And just keep on drinking. Now, if men were invited to money, or the love of sin, or the enticements of the world that'd be a different story but not all of whosoever wills when invited to partake of God's grace and so he insists that before men will thirst for God's divine work in their soul two things have to happen first they have to have a desire it's got to come from somewhere I invite you to work it up yourself if you think you can if you think you can, I invite you to prostrate yourself before God's truth and cry to God to open your heart and the eyes of your understanding, give to your ear hearing after the gospel that you might attend on the things of eternity in your soul. Either a man can do it himself or he needs somebody to give him that which he cannot do. And up till now, Nobody's ever been able to change his spots and change his nature. And unless God works a work of divine grace in your soul, you'll never be thirsty for God's grace to come your way. And that's the reason I say and that salvation is in the way of seeking, seeking him until he does for you what only God can do. A desire must be worked in you. You can't do it yourself. You can cry to God 
to do it in you. And they trust in that grace. Men do not thirst for God's power in their life long as they trust in their own. And you will never, now hear you will never turn yourself over to Christ until you've got confidence in him, in his power. You haven't got any, but that's still just half of it. Faith is a confidence. Faith is confidence. Faith is confidence. Faith is what? Confidence. If I turn myself over to Christ, will everything be all right? Faith says yes. Faith is confident. Yes, sir. I don't have the power. He has. He has. I can't do it. He can. Faith is confidence. Who are they? Whosoever will. <clears throat> Number one, they're the ones who thirst. They're the ones who thirst. They're the ones who thirst. Who are the whosoever wills? In the second place, they're the ones who take. They're the ones who take. Whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. Thirsty people, when offered water, what do they do? They'll take it. They'll take it. All the alibis are gone. They'll take it. They're thirsty. Here's water. They take it. They don't sit and watch the stream go by. They take it. Let him take it. He's invited to take it. He's commanded to take it. And the whosoever wills do, brother. Thirsty people take water. And when it's there for the taking, the second thing then the Bible says about the whosoever wills, they are the folks that take of the grace of God. You know, that basic principle in that faith which lines us up or unites us with or relates us to the throne of God from which this grace falls uh, to What is it? Yes, it's a calling upon the name of the Lord. It's a calling upon the name of the Lord. That's what is the active part of saving faith. The folks who are the wills of the Bible are not the folks who end their strength, you know. They do part of the God does the other life we've heard, but they're the thirsty ones, and they're thirsty enough to take. They lay hold. They lay hold. Now, I've been preaching you know, 39 years, and I still don't know how to handle the great paradoxes of the Bible, so I don't try to. I know this, that faith is the great vital act of the soul in actually in of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that it's a gift of God, but I also know that it's your act. And there comes a time if you keep out of hell and if you gain some assurance of hell when there's a great vital act of your own. You reach out. Do what this text takes. You take. You take. You explain that? No, I can't explain it. I can't explain it. But I will tell you this, that God's not going to act for you. He enables you, but he will not save for you. 
you're going to have to reach out and lay hold of Christ. Is that all right? Yes. 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 The whosoever wills of the Bible, they reach out and begin that thing that I call the active principle of saving faith. What is it? It's a calling upon the name of the Lord. Now, I'm not talking so much about what we call a mourner's bench. I have no particular objection. I don't want to get in a straitjacket. I, the only thing you, you, with me is I go to a place and it's different everywhere you go. I def, go to different sections of the country. I go to different atmospheres. And here's the way to do things here. And that's perfectly all right for me. As long as you tell them, don't tell me I got to do it that way. In other words, I can see how God would bless you and your dumbness. He does me some. Just so you don't say that's the only way he'll work. See what I mean? Huh? That's the only way he'll work. Somebody says, well, you can't get to you have to do it this way. Now, wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. So I'm not talking about the mourner's bench as such. Although... It's a lot better than nothing. It's better than nothing. I tell you what, I'm talking about a mourner's bench in your heart. I'm talking about an expression that describes the child of God in his birth and in his daily growth and walk. It's a calling on the name of the Lord. It's not a once-for-all proposition. I'm as certain as I'm alive that I'm going to speak the truth now. Everything in relation to your response to and commitment to Jesus Christ needs to be done over again tomorrow. Every commitment, you need to do it again tomorrow. Every act of the Christian life must be daily. The Bible knows nothing about a repentance for yesterday without today, or believing yesterday and not believing today, and clinging to Christ yesterday but not clinging to him today. Every expression in the New Testament where people are said to have eternal life or everlasting life is in connection with a verb that's in the present participle case. It's he that believeth. He that continueth, he that abideth, he that obeyeth, and so forth and so on. It's the proposition of today. I make this statement. I think I'm right. You can have no assurance that you're a child of God if you have to go back to yesterday for evidence. You don't have evidence today. You don't have assurance today. Is that all right? Is that all right? You believe in it now? What I did yesterday, how about now? How about now? You obeyed yesterday. How about today? It's a present proposition. It's a present tense proposition. You must be up to date. Every commitment needs to be recommitted. Every vow needs to be revowed. Repentance needs to be repeated. Prayers need to be repeated. Faith needs to be continuous. What am I talking about? One of the three things the Scripture says about the whosoever rules of the Bible is they take. They take. They take whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. 
was taking, I don't know but what the best Bible language for it, is a calling on the name of the Lord. Now this continuous calling, now hear me as I make a hard statement, this continuous calling characterize those who really believe in sovereign grace. The secret, unceasing calling out of the recesses of their heart is the mark of a child of God. Did you get it? This unceasing, this continuous, inside, in the secrets of your heart, calling on, calling on, calling on the name of the Lord. That's the mark of a child of God, and the lack is the mark of a man who believes, but his faith is the same kind that James spoke of. It's a dead faith. It produces no works. For the believing child of God begins his work by a calling unceasingly on the name of the Lord. Now, down I I thought it all my life. We take the expression Romans ten thirteen. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so they say, Brother Barn, what means this? You get folks come down the aisle, get down on the knees, and get them to say, Lord, for Jesus' sake, Amen, and they guarantee your salvation. But that isn't what this scripture is talking about. This is an incessant. This is a lifelong, this is an unceasing, this is continual calling upon, reaching out to, leaning upon, confidence in, surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know what I'm talking about. Whosoever shall call, whosoever shall call, that marks him. He's a caller. He, that's, 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 that's the mark of a child of God. Hell's going to be full of people that got down on their knees, said a little prayer. Somebody said, you say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Now let's get it. You're not saved by prayer, but you're not saved apart from it. For bless God, this sovereign grace I'm talking about will bring you prostrate before the Lord on your face, calling on the name of the Lord. Let me repeat it. You're not saved by prayer. You're saved by faith. But you're not saved apart from prayer. Well, this thing will get serious. There's a calling on the name of the Lord. Somebody says, I mean, get out on your knees, Mr. Spurgeon. I rarely ever prayed on his knees. Rare. He never, never prayed with his eyes closed. Maybe sometime in the pulpit. He, he, he didn't do that. He lived a life, as far as we can find out, he, he, it was just sort of a state of prayer, and he was always calling on the name of the Lord. Now, while you're working, and you're not conscious for the deep things that go on in your life or in your subconscious, the child of God is, is calling on the name of the Lord all the time. Washing dishes, not conscious of calling on the name of the Lord. Pine corn, calling on the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call, that is the active principle of a faith that takes of the Lord day by day. Now, whosoever will is a fellow that takes. And then the last place, the third thing about 
that whosoever wills of the Bible, not only are they thirsty, not only do they take. I want to press that just a little more before I get off of it. Uh, they don't wait on anything. They don't wait for deeper conviction or deeper this or deeper that. They're thirsty enough and watered off the table. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be what? Shall be comforted. A mourning that doesn't lead to being comforted of Christ is not Holy Spirit repentance. There's a comfort that follows New Testament Bible mourning, grieving over sin and seeking of the Lord. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, and be thou shalt seek me with all thine heart, I shall surely be found of thee, is the Bible language. But in the last place, the third thing about the whosoever wills of the Bible, they take the grace of God freely. Freely. I think maybe that can mean two things abundantly. Not just a sip, not Sunday morning proposition, not a thing apart from life. Not a thing is a convenience of a church, every t- town ought to have a chamber of commerce and a colonic club and a school and a church. That's atmosphere. That's Americanism now. Not just as an appendage on life and things that are really important, but they take it with a great grasp. They, 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 they don't spare. They take it freely. They take it freely. They take the grace of God abundantly, more than our necessary food. We thirst and take a sovereign grace, calling on the name of the Lord. And then I think it could mean without price. Let him that's a thirst come, and whosoever will. Who are the whosoever will? Well, the thirsty ones. What do they do? They take. They take freely. They take without price. You know, this water of life costs in two different senses. It costs the Son of God. I always hesitate. I don't know how to talk about this. I wouldn't be a sentimentalist or be maudlin. I've never been able to talk about the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross but one time in my ministry. I've never been able to repeat it. I don't know. You're in mystery. And I would not appeal to our senses that I could get people to cry if I told them about how the little girl sobbed her heart out because her little dolly got run over by the car of the little dog, you know, got his leg broken. And I would not approach the sufferings of Christ from that standpoint. I don't know how to. One time in my whole ministry, I was able to talk about the sufferings of Christ on the cross in a God-honoring way. One time in 39 years. But although I'm not able to talk about it, I make a mess when I try. It cost the Son of God the agony of separation from God. No man can even quote rightly, much less enter in 
to the terrible, terrible agony of that cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It cost the Son of God. This river of water of life flows from the throne of God. It was opened up out of the wounded side of the Lord of glory. And there is a sense in which it costs the person who receives it, not as a price to purchase it, for it's without money or without price, but in another sense, it costs you all that you have and all you are to receive it. You do not buy life, and yet, in time you forsake all to gain one. You cannot purchase a drink of this life-giving water as a price to be paid, but I'm very badly fooled if the New Testament don't teach that in the obtaining of this water you have to lose your own life. And from here on out, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And everything you are and everything you have is not yours. It's his. In that sense, with all the warnings that the Lord faithfully gave to many women of something of what was involved in setting out to walk with the Lord, it can be said that while you cannot buy it with a price, the obtaining of it will cost you everything you have. These are the three things that the Bible says about the whosoever wills of this day or any other day. They're thirsty people. Many women by God's grace have been brought to see the truth a little bit about themselves and their need for God's grace to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. They come and take and they take freely at the cost of the life laid down of the Son of God and at the cost in that sense of all they have and are. Are you one of the whosoever will? deeply, deeply sensitive of your need of divine grace. Take, take, lay hold, lay hold, freely, largely, abundantly, at the cost of everything. And if you've not already done so, find out how this congregation does. I do not know their method, but request permission to walk an aisle or meet with somebody to do something. When that has been accomplished, say, I wish 
this church to baptize me. Why do you want me to baptize? Because it's the seal and the sign of my faith. Thirsty, I came and took freely, freely, and the work's done. And I want the world to have my confession of what God's done for me. The New Testament says the way we make our public profession of faith is in the act of baptism. There ought to be people searching our churches out in any way you have. God help us not to be happy if the Lord's day passes and somebody doesn't come. Say, I want this church to baptize me. What you want me baptized for? Well, bless God. I owe it all to him, but he made me thirsty. I got to where I wasn't so happy to be in rebellion. I got to where some sense of the fact that I'm dying, and I've come to the side, other side of death, there's judgment. And I became somewhat sensible of the fact I couldn't remedy the situation myself. Being thirsty, I've heeded the invitation. Who sows a thirst? Let him come. Come where? To this great river of life. That's Christ, of course. Throw from the throne of God. And I took, praise God, I took to him be the glory I took freely. Now I can sing hallelujah, tis done. I believed on the Son. I'm saved by the blood of the crucified one. And I want to put on his uniform and wear the sign and seal of that covenant and tell the world, here's a trophy of the sovereign grace of God Almighty through the blood of Jesus Christ. You do that for the glory of God and the safety of your soul. May the Lord do that for somebody here tonight. If that needs to be done, let us stand. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, 
from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.